Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. Despite my best efforts, I'm still not Amber McKinney. Uh, Amber is out this week. I am Alex Lawson, joined as always by my trusty co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. It's Bro Se again, Billy. It is Bro Se. Bro Se. I, I, I just can't believe... Wow. I mean, that was a good that was a good story you told about, about Amber like being out. I'm doing scare quotes in the... <laughs> Amber was... Uh, Amber was fired. Yeah, uh, and um, we're all we're just sort of reeling here. And uh, well, you she know. was well. I mean, let's let's let, let's be candid. She was fired by us. It was an insurrection. Um, it was, it was and a citizens it, firing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I, I don't know if I mean I don't know if we've terminated her. I think she might be back. I'm not really sure. In reality, Amber is killing it in Maine right now. Was oh, that right? Yeah, she and Andrew went up there for uh, for vacation. I'm very jealous. What's going and on with Maine? I, like, I have like five friends who have moved to Maine in the last like year. I know. Same here. Everyone it's, goes uh, there and loves it. It's a lovely know. place. But lovely um, place from what I've heard. Never been myself. Maybe this summer. We have know. a we have a good show ahead. We do. Yeah. Um, we talked to a uh, friend of the show, often guest John Bellinger, mm-hmm. um, about the um, the shooting last weekend in El Paso and talk of whether or not the shooter could be extradited to Mexico and the feasibility of that and all sort of a primer on extradition. Very interesting conversation. Yeah, it was good talk with him um, about an interesting legal issue, sort of diplomatic issue that's that's cropped up on the on the periphery of this, uh, you know, sort of heinous tragedy. Um, so that is stick around for that. That was very good. Um, later at the end of the show, we are going to talk about a story that have that is basically a Bill Donahue fever dream about uh, 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 is, it, is it copyright or trademark? Bill? It's copyright, <laughs> copyright law. law and the Philly fanatic. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but first, uh, let's get into the news. Um, you know, we're in the media. We're obviously going to talk about a media story. Right. Interesting week for the New York Times. Uh, generally, took some hits on in the online discourse. Many and uh, uh, and in the courtroom, as it yeah, turns out. Yeah, as Alex alluded, they've gotten a lot of heat over their headlines this week. It's been a Repeated controversies, but um, uh, we got an interesting First Amendment ruling from the Second Circuit here in New York that uh, revived a libel lawsuit filed by Sarah Palin against the newspaper over an editorial. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's I said it was a First Amendment ruling. Uh, the, the court would have you believe that it's this very minor technical procedural ruling they made a big point to say that well i don't want to hear about that i mean well let, let, let's talk about some let's talk about some big picture <laughs> stakes here um i think we talked about the case before but uh like you say the the, the editorial was from several years ago and the litigation has yeah. flowed since let's uh let's let's reorient ourselves here so in june 2017 the times ran an editorial called uh america's lethal politics which was it was written right after that mass shooting at the congressional softball game the, mm-hmm. the steve scalise shooting and um the editorial was obviously talking about the the impact of sort of hyperbolic rhetoric and how it can sometimes lead to to violence in american politics um and uh in making that point it referenced the um, the shooting of Gabrielle Giffords back in 2011, mm-hmm. um, that mass shooting that took place in Tucson. Um, it, specifically, it mentioned a ad run by Sarah Palin's uh, Super PAC that had superimposed crosshairs over various congressional districts of different uh, mm-hmm. Democrats around yeah. the around the country, one of whom was Giffords. And that ran before the shooting happened and people sort of uh, talked about whether or not that, w- that led to it. Yeah. Um, the editorial said that the... Um, Quote, link to political incitement was clear in the Giffords shooting. And then it later was talking about the Scalise shooting and sort of contrasted it and said um, that in in that case, there had 
been, quote, no sign of incitement as direct as in the Giffords attack. Mm -hmm. So Sarah Palin said that was not true. Eventually, the New York Times um, ran a correction that said that no link had ever been established between the the mailing and the Giffords shooting. But the damage was done, and Palin quickly filed a defamation lawsuit against the Times. I was trying to remember if she ever... If there was ever any litigation, either actual courtroom litigation or just talking about because like in 2011 when that happened, because people were kind of throwing that around. Um, yeah, it could it could have been a situation where something wasn't uh, direct enough. Yeah, it wasn't it, direct enough. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so anyway, it got the the, the claim was re, sort of regurgitated in this June 2017 editorial in the Times, and then there was a suit that was filed. Exactly. So the the case that she filed was before Jed Rakoff, who's a fairly well known Manhattan federal judge, yeah. and. Um, so he quickly orders, and this is sort of what the appeal gets to, but he, he he quickly orders this very unusual hearing. I talked to people this week who were like, I've never seen this before in a defamation case. But he ordered this hearing at the very earliest stages of the case on a motion to dismiss, um, saying that, that he wanted the author of the editorial, a guy named James Bennett, to testify about his mindset when he wrote the the editorial. He did that for a very specific First Amendment reason, which is for... He wanted to see if Palin had any chance of proving what's known as actual malice, malice. Mm-hmm. which, um, you know, any folks who have taken a media law class will know that um, it's the, that's the very difficult standard that if you're a public figure, if you're this well-known famous person, you have to meet that standard to sue someone for defamation in, in mm-hmm. U.S. court. It's intentionally very difficult to prove that because you want to allow people to criticize um, you know, powerful yeah, people. The law um, is not meant to be a chilling effect on on media. Exactly. That you yeah. need to go beyond where the law is to make it even mm-hmm. more difficult to give this sort of breathing space for, yes. for free speech. So the, the, the way that you prove that is to say that someone intentionally said something false about you or they wrote something with this reckless disregard for the truth. So it's mm-hmm. a, and it's a very, very difficult thing to to prove. So, so he was asking this of Bennett about his He was mindset. asking Bennett to come in there so that they could assess that at the very earliest stages uh-huh. of the case. Shortly after that hearing, Rakoff ruled that Palin could not, in fact, show that and um, that the author had made this sort of inadvertent mistake in keeping the thing in there and she couldn't show the requisite, you know, I'm writing this falsehood in here on purpose to, to harm you. With the intent of, of wrecking the reputation of Sarah exactly. Palin or doing whatever else. Okay. Um, so that's what happened at the at, at the district court. And then the Second Circuit came in and said, what, no dice? Yeah. Um, and our Pete Brush had a really good story back a few months ago when yeah, the, there I were remember. oral arguments where it seemed pretty clear that the Second Circuit was going to overturn that dismissal. Um, so the Second Circuit did that this week on Tuesday. They revived Palin's case. Um, the issue squarely at the center of the case was this weird hearing held by Rakoff. Um, basically, at the earliest stages, uh, a court isn't supposed to – they're not supposed to look at anything other than the complaint. That's how American law works. Yeah. That, um, if if what you say in your complaint filed in court is um, establishes a violation of the law, the, the case can move forward. There's other opportunities to dismiss the case, mm-hmm. but – um, but at that stage, that's that's the standard. And by considering this witness testimony and other things like that, Rakoff had gone beyond that. And um, the court said he ran headlong into the rules of procedure and the, the way that we try to be fair to, to both sides. Okay. Um, the court, as I mentioned up top, made a real point to say this is just this procedural, technical, wonky ruling on pleading standards yeah. and 
procedure and, you know. Yeah, the, the, and not, not, not questioning witnesses uh, before, you know, you're, we, we've done the preliminary parts of the exactly. case. Exactly, and the quote, the quote from the court was, nothing in this opinion should be therefore construed to cast doubt on the First Amendment's crucial constitutional protections. So it was meant to say, we're not ruling on the merits of her case. Her case might still fail later. But what we're only saying here is that the judge had this weird procedural process and he shouldn't have done that. There, there, there are boxes to check in order that exactly. when we when we are, you know, litigating cases and things exactly. like that and things got a little wonky here right. is what they're saying. Right. Um, but you wrote a story, uh, which everybody should read if you get a chance, that was said it there, there, there might be more under the hood there. Yeah, it's um, it's it's sort of a situation where the court really made a conscious effort to limit itself, but maybe maybe it went a little further than it thought it did. Um, you know, the, the court because the court and this is the important part didn't just vacate Rakoff's ruling and send it back and say, do a do-over. They, they, they looked at this amended complaint that Palin filed that incorporated aspects of mm-hmm. the testimony that Bennett made in that hearing okay. and looked at that uh, complaint and said some of the stuff that sh- what she said in here is enough to get past the pleading stage, um, that that complaint should survive a motion to dismiss. So they didn't just send it back and tell him to reassess and decide whether or not it does. They said, no, this is plausible under under the standard that we're telling you you should have applied. Um, So the court made some very specific findings about about the case that she was making. The the court said it was plausible that Bennett knew the editorial was false because he was an editor-in-chief at The Atlantic before he had been at The New York Times. And Way back in 2011, The Atlantic had written a story debunking the link between the Palin and the Giffords thing. Uh, see, this is what I was talking about in the beginning. I was like, I know there was discussion of like of right. this link of the crosshairs. Right. So this is interesting. He's at The Atlantic and The Atlantic writes about it. So they said that was plausible. They also said uh-huh. it was plausible enough that um, that he had a personal bias against Palin and uh, gun rights in general because his brother is a U.S. senator who is, has been threatened with shootings and is also an outspoken advocate for for gun control. That's, um, that's Michael Bennett, who's now running for president. By the right. Way. Yes. And um, they also they also said very specifically that that, um, you know, the Times decision to issue a correction very quickly um, that that it's sure it might have been plausible that that could mean that it was an innocent mistake it's, by the Times yeah. and they were correcting it. But it's also plausible that it um, that the Times made a calculated decision to move away from an intentionally false story that they just didn't want to defend anymore. So it was. I, yeah, <laughs> it was. It, they went into a lot of detail about what this complaint said. And they're an appeals court they're, they What they say means a lot. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, that that alone is is more than just this little sort of technical, you know, we're avoiding the First Amendment kind of... Don't get the cart before the horse type of right, thing. Right, exactly. Yeah. But but they were also, in terms of the substantive uh, libel law, when I talked to people, they were like, this isn't typically what we look at when we look at actual malice. Courts look at subjective knowledge of the author. That, that Did they mean to do this? These are all circumstantial things. These are objective things on the outside that add up to mean that mm-hmm. maybe he thought this. And so ruling that that was plausible is perhaps not in line with with some of what people thought sort of the, the law was. Okay. Um, and finally, I think the point, the big takeaway is that even if this was this little procedural wonky, you know, ruling only about the procedure that should be applied, procedure's a pretty big deal when it comes to First Amendment cases and, and libel cases, the delicate balance between defamation and the First Amendment, because a you know a publication or a blog or a speaker online getting dragged into court over something they said, that has a, a chilling effect in and of itself. The, the idea that you're going to then have to, that the case will get past the earliest stages and will we'll stay in court and you're going to have to spend money litigating it. 
that can have a pretty strong effect as well. So the, the question of how early these cases get tossed out if they are not meritorious is a pretty big substantive issue in First Amendment law, even even in itself. So, I mean, that's why states pass laws that make it really easy to to throw these cases out. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so it's an interesting, it is a, I mean, Palin's case will move forward against the Times. They have the Times in, in discovery going forward. Um, yeah. But it's also maybe a bigger, it raises bigger issues for other media organizations. Yeah. Um, well, if we've learned nothing from that segment, it's that sort of, uh, you know, the rules of the court are the rules of the court, and they should be followed uh, thusly, lest you find yourself in a in a real mess. The rules are the rules. The rules are the rules. Um, and uh, I think that I think that that applies. This is not a First Amendment case we're about to talk about, but there's a really, really pretty messy uh, case going on down in Florida State Court um, that really centers around some of the some of the sort of core operations of a trial. Um, and the, the, the case in question involves a college professor who uh, believes he was wrongly terminated following allegations of sexual harassment. Um, the professor, he lost at trial, um, but he got an appeals court uh, to order a new trial last week because uh, the university's lawyers during the trial uh, told the jury that there was a whole bunch of evidence against the professor that they weren't allowed to present to the jury. <laughs> I'm imagining them, like, winking at jurors. Like, they're, you know, this other stuff. Yeah. We can't tell you about it. Yeah. Um, it's, but, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to the trial stage and the appellate court ruling, but first, orient us with the case. What what happened here? Yeah. Um, so the case was filed by a man named Russell Mutri, who was a professor of social sciences at uh, Bethune-Cookman University. That's in Daytona Beach, Florida. It's a uh, historically black uh, college. Um, he held that position until he was a tenured professor, and he held that position until 2009 when he was fired after the university uncovered numerous allegations of sexual harassment against him from students. Um, he sued the university, uh, and as the trial was playing out, uh, attorneys uh, for for BCU, for the college, um, took what what I think most neutral observers would say was a pretty interesting uh, gambit <laughs> during the closing arguments. They basically told the jury that they were unable to present evidence that would have been favorable to their own case. Uh, the precise quote is quoted in the transcript as the, the attorney for the college tells the jury during closing arguments, I can't show you everything. You haven't seen everything. <laughs> now, that, uh, objections are a thing that, you, that, that you know, happen in movies a lot, yeah. but I have to think that, that the, the attorneys here sort of threw a, threw a foul through a flag. They, they they objected at the time um and said, you know, this is this is he's hinting at evidence that is not that is not in that is not admitted here. Yeah. Um they were overruled by the trial court. Uh the appeals court came in uh uh last week, it was Friday, um and said that that was a mistake. Um it, it, it's not even a particularly long opinion from them. They right. basically just said you Cannot do that. Uh, you messed up. They said this was uh, the, the quote was improper and highly prejudicial by the uh, uh, counsel for the college, yeah. and they ordered a new trial. So that's a pretty straightforward <laughs> decision. But do we have any sense at this point, like what the 
what the other evidence was that they were hinting at? Yeah. So this is where it gets messy. I, I mean, I mean, it's messy anyway. I mean, it's a it's a sexual harassment claim. It involves, you know, uh, people, you know, educators who have tenure. That's already messy enough. This case has been going on for 10 years. I mentioned he was fired in 2009. Yeah. Um, so long, in fact, that, that Moutry, the, the professor, uh, passed away five years ago. His estate is still litigating wow. it. Um, now, part of the reason it's taken so long is that this is not the first mistrial in this case. Um, the allegations against the professor surfaced in this report um, that the uh, university commissioned by this um, uh, investigator named Bo Brewer. And Brewer's report basically granted anonymity to nearly everyone involved in the alleged harassment, uh, the, the accusations against Mutri. This, this includes five individuals who actually made allegations against him. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, several faculty members and other workers at the university who didn't even specify whether or not they had seen this alleged misconduct, this harassment. Um, it's all, it's all uh, anonymous, the entire report. He, like, destroys his notes. And that... Um, you know, is basically the basis of evidence for the first time Mutri goes to trial. Right. Um, he is, he, he loses based mostly on that evidence from this report. Um, the appeals court comes in again and says, this is a document that is full of hearsay. Yeah. Uh, you should, you should never have admitted this into evidence. Um, and you need to have a new trial. And that's the trial we're talking about now. <laughs> so they have, so the, the lawyers for the university, if you can, I apologize this is getting a little weedy, but they they now know in the second trial that they're not allowed to talk about the yeah. allegations in this report. And they go through almost the whole thing. And then in closing arguments, they they allude to the fact that there's a mountain of evidence that they haven't yet presented. Um, and then they get rebuked again. We are now going back to trial for a third time. So the question becomes, how do you hint about this in an even more subtle way? I suppose, I, yes. Do you, do, you, do you ask them to Google a report? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's it's it's an interesting thing. They they will now go back. I mean, I, I can only imagine the judge will say, oh, it's you people again. Um, <laughs> but uh, in any case, there's lots of thorny stuff here. Um, when you're talking about, you know, anonymity granted to people who are making accusations of sexual harassment or sexual misconduct, that's, of course, been in the news a lot. Um, and the sort of limits of the judiciary to, uh, you know, field those accusations yeah. and, and adjudicate the case fairly. Um, not easy questions to answer, uh, and the court is going to have a third chance to do it. Um, uh, and we'll see, uh, I'll be interested to see how the lawyers adjust their strategy, if, uh, if nothing else. Last weekend's deadly shooting in El Paso killed eight Mexican citizens, leading Mexico's government to suggest it will take the unusual step of seeking to extradite the shooter. To discuss the legal and practical dimensions of the situation, we welcome back to the show John Bellinger, a partner at the firm of Arnold and Porter and a former legal advisor at the U.S. State Department. Thanks for joining us again, John. Nice to be with you guys. So, John, before we get into the specifics of uh, last week's tragedy and the current situation, we wanted to ask if you could just orient the listeners on, you know, the, the way extradition works generally, and then how how the U.S. and, and, and Mexico typically approach uh, uh, extradition. Sure. Uh, so the United States has uh, extradition treaties with more than 100 countries in the world. Uh, many of them are very old. This is a, uh, a very old uh, uh, cooperative practice between states to have 
of fugitives uh, uh, returned uh, by the process of extradition from one uh, state to another, and it is done uh, by treaty in which the two countries will agree uh, that for individuals who satisfy the terms of the treaty uh, are obligated to be returned from one country to the requesting country. Uh, the United States has got some very old treaties. We've been modernizing our treaties in recent years to make it uh, easier for people to be returned uh, and use a more modern uh, template. These are actually done as treaties so that they have to be approved by the Senate. Uh, and, of course, we only want to uh, enter into extradition treaties with countries where we would be willing to actually uh, send people from the United States uh, to the extradition treaty between the United States and Mexico uh, is actually somewhat older. It uh, dates to 1978, so it's not been uh, one of the more uh, modern uh, treaties. Uh, but uh, uh, it still works very well, uh, and the United States and Mexico uh, will uh, extradite uh, fugitives uh, from the United States to Mexico or from Mexico uh, to the United States. Last point, the most common pattern in extraditions, although there can be you know, different variations, is when uh, a person uh, commits a crime in the United States uh, and then flees to some other country where you know, U.S. law enforcement can't go grab them. Uh, so we ask the foreign country to arrest them and return them to the United States uh, for prosecution and trial. Uh, that's probably the most common but there are other cases where the crime has been committed outside the United States, like an act of terrorism or uh, drug trafficking uh, uh, or a crime against an American outside the United States. And the person never was in the United States to begin with. And the United States then asks that country to arrest the person uh, and extradite them to the United States. Well, that's probably a good way to get into now that we sort of understand how that works. Um, let's turn exactly to the uh, the deadly events of last week and the shooting in Texas, um, the Mexican government has sort of been making vague statements or not not so vague statements about wanting to bring the shooter from the United States jurisdiction into its own jurisdiction. Why? What is exactly their, their sort of legal reasoning behind wanting to do that? Well, I guess there's sort of there's probably a political reasoning and a legal reasoning. Okay. Uh, their political reasoning is probably more important than their legal reasoning. Their political reasoning, I assume, although maybe I should not try to put my mind into the minds of the Mexicans, is uh, that this was uh, a heinous tragedy where a number of Mexican nationals were killed, and rather than uh, sit on the outside and, 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 and really not do anything other than to urge the United States to prosecute these people, the Mexican government... Uh, is under political pressure to show that it is looking out for uh, Mexican nationals and rather than just urge the United States to act in the United States. They are taking the most aggressive step, which is to say, uh, uh, extradite this person to Mexico and we are going to prosecute him here for killing Mexicans. So that's a aggressive action that shows the Mexican uh, public that they are uh, Mexican government is taking uh, its responsibilities very seriously. Uh, I, I think they probably understand that's unlikely to happen, 
but uh, under the treaty, uh, it there there it may well be covered under the treaty. Well, yeah, some, I I was going to uh, ask if this yeah. is like if if this is uh, an unusual uh, sort of line of reasoning that they're approaching. I mean, you you laid out some of the terms of extradition before for us. Does this strike you as novel, or is it about par for the course? What what they've done? Uh, it's not that unusual. Uh, there's one part of it which is unusual, which I, which is that the person that they're asking to be returned is not a Mexican, right? Uh, but an American national. Uh, so it's pretty unusual, and I, I think I've seen something said, but I have not researched myself to say this is the first time that Mexico has at or would ask for a U.S. Mm. national to be returned mm-hmm. or extradited under the treaty. The first parts are fairly standard. There are obstacles that would have to be uh, addressed. First is, uh, has the shooter committed a crime under Mexican law? Yeah. Uh, the, treaty, the treaty covers things, felonies like murder, uh, but the question is, is it a crime under Mexican law for a U.S. national to kill a Mexican in the United in States? The United That's States. obviously yeah. a violation of U.S. law, yes. but is that a violation of Mexican law? From what I have read, the Mexicans are saying that he would not be tried for or prosecuted for murder. He would be prosecuted for terrorism, which yeah. would be something potentially covered by the treaty. So first question, is the offense covered by the treaty? And it appears that there's an argument that it would be covered by the treaty. Uh, the second question is, under uh, international law and in all extradition treaties, uh, a person can't be tried in both countries for the same offense. Right. It's essentially the international equivalent of double jeopardy. So uh, if a person is prosecuted in country A, the country B can't request his extradition to be prosecuted for exactly the same thing. So the Mexicans would have to ask for the shooter to be extradited to Mexico to be tried for something else, which again mm-hmm. is, is looks like it could be possible. If the shooter is prosecuted for uh, murder uh, and possibly federal hate crimes uh, uh, and obviously a violation of uh, Texas law, but Mexico uh, asks for his extradition to prosecute him for terrorism of Mexicans, that's actually a different offense. So it's possible that those first two hurdles, yeah. uh, is there an extraditable crime, and is it a different crime, could well be met. Well, right? John, I was just going to say, you you sort of alluded to it, and it seems like the consensus among commentators is that this is something of a of a long shot. Um, I mean, is there, is there e- either from the, from, it sounds like some of the legal hurdles could be surmounted, but I mean, is it, is it more of a practical thing that, that it doesn't seem like the U.S. would, would do take this kind of step or or you know why is it that this is such a such an unlikely outcome yeah no exactly right i uh again without you know we haven't seen an extradition request right so we and i i'm not an expert in mexican law and we don't know what the u.s might try him for but in theory legally uh it looks like there could well be a offense in mexico that he has committed terrorism and that he could be asked for to be tried for something different than in the United States. So uh, it sounds to me like there's an argument that he could be covered by the treaty. Normally, extradition treaties are obligatory. If someone is covered by the treaty and the United States receives a request, they have to be extradited. That's the the international law obligation. But the United States-Mexico treaty does not require either country to 
uh, extradite their own nationals. Mm-hmm. That's discretionary. So the United States may, uh, but is not required to extradite this guy. And so that's where I frankly would be surprised if either Texas or the federal government would agree to extradite him, certainly not before he's tried in the United States. And frankly, after he's tried in the United States, uh, uh, you know, they say that they're going to seek the death penalty. So there are some cases where a person is tried and convicted uh, in the United States and then extradited elsewhere to be tried for further offenses. But it would seem to me uh, unlikely that uh, federal officials would agree to do that here. John, is it so it, it you know, if this doesn't happen, is there still sort of a a middle ground for the Mexican government to be involved in the U.S. judicial process that, you know, uh, involving uh, Mexican government agencies in the investigation or in the criminal justice process? How how might that work if, as it seems, this extradition bid is not actually going to happen? Yeah, can they can they get a bite at the apple or something? I can think of a couple of ways, and I, I saw statements by Mexican officials who said that one reason that they might file an extradition request is so that they could be more centrally involved in the investigation. You know, frankly, that's not really necessary uh, because there's excellent uh, law enforcement cooperation between the United States and Mexico anyway, just informally. And in addition, there's an additional treaty called a mutual legal assistance treaty between the United States and Mexico. In fact, it's the oldest and first mutual legal assistance treaty that the United States signs with any country that obligates uh, assistance on criminal matters between the two countries. So uh, I would guess, really given how well the United States and Mexican law enforcement authorities cooperate, uh, that the Mexican government could ask for uh, information, for updates. I'm sure if there's extremely sensitive information, for some reason or other, the United States might not want to share it. But I would, uh, I would think that uh, to be a cooperative neighbor, that the United States would involve the uh, Mexican government uh, in the investigation, let them know what's happening, uh, because it is a, uh, uh, they do involve killings of their citizens. Just the way if Americans were killed in some other country, and another country is prosecuting that person, you can certainly imagine that the U.S. government and, and the family members would want to know on a very rapid basis What's going on? Yeah. What are you finding? Yeah. What What's the person going to be tried for? Yeah, you can indeed. All right. Well, John, we, uh, we really appreciate you coming by to discuss this. Um, it's a fascinating cross-border issue that uh, I'm sure we'll be watching as it, as it moves forward. Thanks for joining us. Always happy to be with you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Well, we like to end our show with something offbeat, and I mean, Bill, I, I kind of feel like your whole, kind of feel like your whole media and podcasting career has been building to this this moment. This is my opus. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I really did. It really does seem. I made the joke already at the top of the episode. It really does seem like something you would invent to amuse yourself. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, <laughs> I was pretty thrilled to see it come down. I actually was not the first of the story, which was very frustrating. Yeah, but, I know you were uh, upset about that. But okay. anyway, uh, yeah, the Phillies are suddenly embroiled in copyright litigation, which is just a fun sentence for me to say. Definitely, and uh, and and in a particularly fun way. Yeah. So the somebody has threatened to. Uh, Make this is actually a quote from the make the the Philly fanatic a free agent. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, the I mean the we should we should do like a primer on the Philly fanatic. I, was, I mean, p- please, can we do a primer on the Philly fanatic? Just a uh, he's a large green flightless bird. Um, he's got a big belly, no pants. Um, yeah, wears a uh, a Phillies jersey. You know he's done various things. At one point he uh, he, he has done various things. He that's, was, that's true. He he burned an effigy of a, uh, of a of an opposing player on the field. Um, he attempted to do so again with Tommy Lasorda, longtime manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and then Tommy Lasorda assaulted him on the field and pulled the effigy back. Really a great guy, known for shooting hot dogs into the crowd. Yeah, I mean, I'm I have no dog in the fight. I am not a fan of Philadelphia sports, but I I respect the fanatics' work in a big. I mean, he is a. I mean, he's he is the class of the ma- of like the whole of the mascot profession. I would say I wrote in the story that he's arguably the most famous American sports mascot. Would you say what are the what are the well yeah I, I, yes I would agree. Well, Mr. Met's got to be up there. Yes, but what well no, no oh yeah Mr. Met is is in the conversation. Well, mm-hmm. What are the foreign sport mascots? It's a great. It's a great point. I just more meant of the four American sports. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it's him, Mr. Met. I'm biased. I guess some I of would the college put, ones are probably in there. That's true. Yeah. I would. I I would put Benny the Bull. I think producer Steve would agree with me. The the, the the furry red brilliance, Benny the Bull. Okay, so the Philly fanatic yeah, was <laughs> conceptualized by a former Phillies executive back in the 1970s, and he hired a designing firm uh, to create this mascot and um the firm was harrison erickson inc um that one of them was a former muppets uh creator like, oh interesting fairly like distinguished people that, that, that they hired and that you can see that living on in the design exactly so they hired these people and they created the actual costume costume gets very popular the the fanatic character gets very popular in the late 1970s mm-hmm. uh and the the creators come back and renegotiate the deal. They say we want more money for this. It's been they they were paid like two thousand dollars for the initial work, okay. and so they got some big renegotiated contract, which was like two hundred thousand dollars. So fast forward to twenty nineteen, here we are, and the fanatic is this very popular popular mascot. The team's not doing so well, but uh, the the that that never stopped him from doing his job. No, exactly. He, he's, he's out there every day. He's yeah. he's. He has a he has a strong work ethic. Putting that, in the work, that fanatic. Yeah. Um, but so the team files this lawsuit last week, saying <laughs> that the designers have come back to them and said, if you don't renegotiate the contract with us again, we are going to revoke your rights to the fanatic under this sort of obscure provision under the copyright law, and quote, make the fanatic a free agent, sell him to another team. That is that language in the complaint. Yeah, so they have like a letter that the oh, people oh, okay. wrote to I them see. and they quote right. from it. But yeah, so it's this weird rule that like was written into the copyright. Yeah, I was going to ask the... about the, the about the power that the designer of the thing has when they enter into a contract. Or, yeah, know. so it was created in the '70s to give like if you signed a record deal when you were like 19 and you didn't know what you were signing and you never made any money off of your music or you assigned away a copyright of yours to a big company, it gives you a right to take it back. Yeah, and years later, it's like 30 years later, but. Um, the provision hasn't really been tested yet because it was created in the 1970s and it's only started coming due recently for mm-hmm. many people who were uh, eligible for it. So these these designers have told the team that they're going to use that provision to take back the fanatic. The, so the team filed this lawsuit to say, like, no, you, you can't 
do that. Mm -hmm. And um, there's all sorts of reasons. Like they say that the the team says that they played a big role in like designing the character and that um, that renegotiating in the 80s counted as your renegotiation. Yeah. Yeah. Bunch of other stuff. Also that like you that that. You know, we built up trademark rights in the Fanatic. The Fanatic is associated with the Phillies, but um, yeah, I mean, this is all this is all really interesting stuff. I, I we'll see how that goes if it gets legs or anything. I kind of just wanted to keep talking about mascots. Sure, I mean, uh, um, well, 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 for one thing, uh, I've never been to a Phillies game, but the the the, the Fanatic is so popular. I mean, he shows up at other sporting events because he's like so. He like, does, although he's been overshadowed of late by Gritty. Yeah, locally, yeah. The, I mean, uh, yeah, the the uh, Flyers mascot has become kind of like a leftist uh, uh, labor icon, which is very interesting. Among, among other things. Well, yeah. Sh- well, yeah, I mean, Gritty is a, is a Rorschach test. I like the one of the Fanatics moves that I like most is, like, I don't know if, he, if this is canonical or anything, but mm-hmm. I remember seeing him at a, at a game and he would, like, move his stomach around. In like a dance. Oh sure, that's one of his moves. Yeah, and, he, and he'll 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 put he'll put it over someone's head and like yeah. sort of like bat into them. Yeah, I mean, sort of. He's a good mascot, but I I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say he has anything on the uh, the the now defunct 76ers mascot uh, for Philadelphia mascots. What was um, that? It was a large anthropomorphic rabbit uh, named Hip Hop, okay. who was also a rapper. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> this sounds extremely like late '90s, early aughts. Yeah, yeah. But no, I mean hip hop is no longer with us. Um, so. <laughs> the, the the rabbit, not the genre. No. Uh, yes. Um, well, I mean, I, I I frankly I could do with more mascot litigation. On sure. The show. I mean, I'll be keeping an eye on it. Uh, I mean, there's, yeah. I want yeah. like an, uh, some some animal rights suit against the Phoenix Suns gorilla. Uh, paternity suit against Mr. Met. Sure. Uh, other things. Well, Mr. Met. I mean, Mr. Met does have a child. There's. Uh, well, there's. He's, the, he's, he's got one child that we know of. I mean, right. who know? Well, I, I, you know Great what? Point. I, I don't want to do hearsay. Uh, Sully, the, the name of Mr. Met. Anyway, you stay on that beat for us. I, I think will. that uh, uh, that'll do it for us. We, yeah. we, we did another one, bro. Say we didn't steer the plane into the mountain. That was no, good. It, it went well. I'm happy with how it turned out. Cool. Uh, so thanks so much, Bill. See you again next week, guys. Yes, um, we have a lot of people to thank, uh, like we do every week. Our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our contributing reporter, Carolina Bellato. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. The show is available on all major podcast platforms, and we would love it if you could subscribe and leave us a written review if you care to. It really does help people find the show. If you want to know more about any of the interesting legal developments we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thank you, and join us again next week.